Good morning. As Alex reminded us, we are talking about passion this month. This semester, we've been looking at kingdom realities, and we started with uh, purity and power, and now we get to passion. And when Elizabeth asked me to speak this month and told me that the theme was passion, I began to think, what, what am I going to do? You know, what, what is passion? I don't see myself as a passionate person, so I asked Reverend Richard. I said, what am I passionate about? Well, I won't tell you the exact words that he said, <laughs> but it, it translated it, it meant that I am passionate about us doing our best. And that's something I put on myself, it's something I put on him, it's something that I put on you, as some of you have experienced with your papers. Um, maybe I need to apologize at this point. <laughs> um, but like Alex, then I went to the dictionary, and the first thing that I saw was that the word passion comes from a Latin word, patio, meaning to suffer. And then, like Alex's definition, it talks about Christ's passion, usually the last week of his life on earth, and I think Dr. Smith is going to talk to us about that next week. It's the week leading up to Easter. And um, the site that I was looking at referred to Acts 1-3, which in the King James Version says, after his passion... The NIV translates it after his suffering. And so I read a little bit more and I got thinking about Passion Week next week, the Passion Narratives, the stories in the Gospel that tell us about Jesus' last week on earth. There are Passion Hymns. We visited a church in Iceland last summer that was named after an Icelandic hymn writer who had written a series of 50 hymns about Christ's Passion. Passion is also a musical term. Uh, there are musical settings of Jesus' passion. You may have heard of Bach's St. Matthew's Passion. It tells the story of Christ's passion as found in Matthew 26 and 27. There are passion plays that tell the story of the last life of Jesus on earth. Uh, the most famous is in Oberammergau, Germany. They perform it every 10 years and literally half the population of the town is involved. There was a movie in 2004 called The Passion of the Christ. I also read about passion fruit, and the, the, which is the fruit of the passion flower, which was named by Spanish missionaries. And they used it because they used different parts of the plant to teach about different parts of Christ's passion. Uh, for instance, there are spikes on the plant, so they use those to teach about the crown of thorns. I realized then I was getting distracted. <laughs> so I began to look about the, the current meaning of the word, the way that we use the word passion, which stems from the late 14th century, and the Oxford English Dictionary says, it is a strong and barely controllable emotion. It's a state or outburst of strong emotion an intense desire or enthusiasm for something. And as I listened to Chad McCollum last week when he asked us, what wrecks you? I think he was talking about passion. He was clear to point out that he wasn't asking what bothers you, but he was asking what wrecks you, what consumes you. So on the one hand, we have this idea of Christ's suffering, and on the other hand, we have this strong emotion, sometimes enthusiasm, but how do the two come together? So I turned to the Bible. Good place to go. 
The NIV uses the word passion nine times. The King James uses it three times. And the two don't meet anywhere. The, the King James Version, where the King James Version uses passion, um, the NIV uses words that relate to our humanity. For instance, Elijah was a human like us. Where the NIV uses passion, the King James Version uses words like anger and lust, not usually in the positive. And so here I am. I've still got these two definitions and different translations of the Bible with, that, that don't meet. And so I began to think, by now it's getting to about three weeks ago and I'm beginning to stress. And so I began to think, well, what time of year is it? And I realized that this coming Sunday is Palm Sunday. And as I began to think about Palm Sunday, I realized that there were some passionate people there. So today we turn to Mark chapter 11. We're going to read the first 11 verses. Mark chapter 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you doing this, say, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly." They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This story is actually told in all four Gospels, and it's largely the same story, slightly more brief in John's Gospel. But we have Jesus here on his way to Jerusalem. What he knows and what the disciples have not fully understood is that he's going to Jerusalem to die. And they get to the suburbs, and he says to his disciples, to two of them, go into the village and find this donkey. Now, some, some of the Gospels talk about the donkey, some talk about the colt, some talk about both, but basically, go get this animal, untie it, and bring it to me. And if anyone asks, just say that I said it was okay. It reminded me of sometimes with our girls. We say, now, go do this, and if somebody asks you what you're doing, then you can tell them. Or if this happens, if you go buy this and you don't have enough money, do this, or that kind of thing. But Jesus is preparing for eventualities. I got thinking it would be kind of like me coming out of chapel and finding a couple of you getting into my car and starting it. And naturally, I would go to you and say, what are you doing? And if you said to me, well, Dr. Lo Dr. Lyon, Joanne Lyon, the general superintendent, she needs the car, I would probably say, okay. I'd probably scratch my head and wonder what she was doing. But uh, I would probably say, okay, and that's what happened here. 
Um, Matthew and John, at this point, remind their readers, remind us, that this is part of a fulfillment of prophecy from the book of Zechariah. So anyway, the disciples go, they get the donkey as they're untying it. Somebody says to them, what are you doing? They say, the master sent it. Luke points out they found it just as he had told them. Luke uses that same line when he talks about the shepherds going to visit the baby Jesus in Bethlehem. Luke says it was just as he had told them. And so they get this, this donkey colt, they bring it to Jesus, they put their coats on it, and Jesus gets on the donkey. To this point, there has been no evidence that Jesus has ever done anything but walk. But here he is now in this unusual situation, getting onto this donkey. And then the Gospels give us various details of branches and cloaks being spread on the ground or picked, cut from the trees and waved. But basically, the idea seems to be, let's have a parade. Let's have a celebration. It's kind of like the visit of a famous person. If you were in Sussex in the fall of 2012, you may remember when the Olympic torch came through Sussex. It was on its way to Vancouver for the Winter Games, and it came through Sussex. We juggled class schedules. We had, I think we had uh, hot dogs down the hill, and we were part of the community celebration of the Olympic flame coming through Sussex. If you lived here in 2002, you would have been here when the Queen came to Sussex. How weird is that for the Queen to come to Sussex? Um, but, but both of those times, they were times of celebration. When the Olympic flame was here, we waved our maple leaf flags and said, the Olympics is in our country. When the Queen was here, we waved our maple leaf flags, or some of us waved our Union Jacks and said, the Queen is here. I got my picture in the paper because I took my Union Jack. <laughs> um, but this idea, let's celebrate. Somebody important is coming. Let's have a parade. Let's line the streets. Let's cheer and shout. We call Sunday Palm Sunday. In fact, John is the only person who talks specifically about palm branches. The others just talk about cutting branches. But palm branches were used as a sign of victory. They were used in secular processions, secular celebrations. In the ancient world, they decorated their temples with palm branches. There are carvings that have palm branches in. The Romans used it to celebrate military success. They used palm branches as a way of celebration. The Jews in the Old Testament, we have record of them using palm branches as a way of rejoicing. They used them at the Feast of Tabernacles. So there is this heritage on both the, the sacred and the secular side of using palm branches to welcome heroes, to welcome royalty, to celebrate. And then we have this chant, this cheer. We had basketball at, on at our house all weekend. Probably all next weekend, <laughs> the weekend after. But you know at a basketball game, at a hockey game, there is lots of cheering, there are lots of chants. Some of them go on and on and on and on and on. Um, but the people here were, sh were cheering, they were shouting, Hosanna, a Hebrew expression which means save. Reminded me of something like, hail to the chief, or God save the queen. It was a cheer that was used to celebrate. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, from Psalm 118. Tanya read that for us this morning. They were quoting from the Old Testament, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, from, the, the, uh, from our father David. The people recognized that Jesus was somebody significant, and so they had a celebration. They were, again, they were drawing on their traditions, the Jewish people had used this word, Hosanna had used this uh, part of the Psalms, and they were using that to welcome God's promised Messiah. Mark tells us that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem and went to the temple. Luke tells us about him going into the temple and turning over the tables, and then later on about weeping over Jerusalem. So clearly here we have some passionate people. They are excited, they're glad to be there. There is this kind of national religious fervor all mixed in together. I thought maybe it was like the carnival or the circus coming to, to town or Mardi Gras and St. Patrick's Day all rolled in together in Jerusalem. There were hundreds of thousands of people there. They were there for the Passover, they were there because something was going on. There were pilgrims there, there were residents, of, and of course the Romans. I spent some time in Rome and Venice in July this summer. Don't go in July. But narrow streets crowded with tourists. And that's probably the way it was in Jerusalem. And it was a great week to make money selling all sorts of souvenirs. I went to Passover in 30 AD or whatever, my trip to Jerusalem. We're going to get the T-shirt that says, I survived winter 2015. But they were selling souvenirs probably, they were selling animals for sacrifice, making money, and lots of things were going on. There were lots of people there. Some of these people were looking for a miracle. Jesus' reputation had gone ahead of him. They'd heard the stories about Jesus healing Lazarus the previous day that John tells us about. They'd heard the stories about Jesus healing two blind men that Matthew tells us about. And they wanted to see a miracle. Some of them probably said, if I just see one miracle, if I see it for myself, then I'll believe. They wanted to see what Jesus could do. They were looking for a miracle. They were looking for some excitement. But there are also some people there who were looking for political revolution. You only have to turn on the news or go online today and see all over the place stories of riots, and political protests. It's something that, sadly, we are very familiar with. And some of the people in Jerusalem that day saw Jesus as a political figure. They saw him returning to the seat of government, and he was going to take control. Historians tell us that there had been 32 political riots in the last five years, in the previous five years in Jerusalem. One of them, a story is told, led by Zadok, the Pharisee, and Judas of Galilee. 2,000 of their followers had been killed by the Romans. It was as if the Romans had, had killed them, had crucified them, hung them up on trees and said, look, that's what we do with people who rebel. But Jerusalem was still ripe for more revolutions. And so we've got people who are looking for a miracle, who've heard the stories of Jesus. We've got people who are looking for a revolution. But they both agreed on one thing that day. 
here comes the king. Here is the person who's going to save us. The one group of people said, this is the man who's going to perform miracles. He's David's heir. He is the Messiah. It was the other group of people. So here's the man who's going to save us from the Romans. He's the hero. He's the new political leader. But if you read on through the book of Mark or the book of Matthew or Luke or John, you will see that as that week progressed, those hosannas got quieter and quieter. And the cry changed from Hosanna to crucify him. Very quickly over the space of a week, when they realized that things weren't going their way, their cry changed. I read somewhere, I don't remember where, this quote, they had wanted a warrior on a war horse. Instead, they got a carpenter on a jackass. And so they killed him and put a big poster above his head. King of the Jews. Big joke. And one of my questions for us today is, do our passions change that quickly? So we have these very passionate people. But we also have a passionate Christ. What was Jesus doing during all this? Was he standing up on the back seat of his chariot, waving to the crowd like a politician? Was he kissing babies to gain votes? Was he surrounded by bodyguards in black suits and dark glasses? Was he absorbing the cheers of the crowds and loving every minute of the attention? Was he rehearsing his next speech written by his professional speechwriters? Jesus didn't say a word. He rode in silence, just like at his trial. He rode on a donkey, not a war horse. It was an animal of peace, not of war, because he was the prince of peace. But he was also a king. Imagine with me for a minute, a king who gets down on his knees and washes the feet of his followers or ties the laces of their sneakers. Imagine a king dressed like a carpenter, building furniture all day long, not wearing his fine suit and his shined shoes. Imagine a king who waited like a rejected father for his prodigal son to return. Imagine a king who left 99 of his followers to go out and look for one wayward lamb. Philippians 2.8 says, being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself. He was the king, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. This wasn't the king that either group had imagined. It wasn't the way that the people perceived he would be the Messiah. It wasn't the way the people perceived that he would lead a revolution. But we wouldn't say that Jesus wasn't passionate. It's just that he showed it in a different way. Luke does tell us about him turning the tables, also tells us about him weeping over Jerusalem. And so I got thinking about passionate people today. Often if we say that somebody is passionate, we think of them being loud, upfront, demonstrative, in your face, in front of the camera, maybe even demanding but fickle and changing. 
What is the current passion today in our world? By next week will be something else. It'll be another hot topic. People are passionate about something today, but next year they've forgotten that and they're on to the next thing. And so I came all the way back around to this idea of what is passion? Is it loud and upfront? Or is it riding on a donkey? Reverend Richard hardly knew his grandparents. Grandma Starks died when he was two. Grandpa Starks died when he was age seven. He hardly knew them. I never met them, obviously. Um, but I have heard stories about them. Grandma Starks apparently was, was a large lady, maybe not real tall, if I understand correctly, but quite big, and it appears that she was in charge. There are stories told in the family about if, if you went to visit Grandma and Grandpa Starks in an evening, at some point when Grandma decided that she'd had enough, she would turn to her husband, to Grandpa Starks, and say, well, Gordon, let's go to bed so these people can go home. Imagine being in that position. You'd feel like you had to go home. But she was also known for being demonstrative in her faith. She was what we would call probably an old-timey Wesleyan Methodist. And if she got blessed at church or at camp, she would take her white hanky as a symbol of surrender, and she would wave it, and she would walk around the church, maybe do her victory march. She was very demonstrative. Grandpa Starks was not as big as Grandma Starks, maybe tall, but, but not as big around. But my father-in-law, Reverend Richard's father, tells stories about Grandpa Starks sitting in the pew with a single tear rolling down his face. When I married into the family, I heard lots of stories about Grandma Starks. People would say, oh, I remember Dee Starks. She used to go around the tabernacle at camp and do this and wave her hanky. Very few people tell stories about Grandpa Starks. But was he any less passionate? I don't think so. I think he just showed it in a different way. Grandma Starks was up front, not that she was looking for the attention, but that was the way that she demonstrated her passion. For Grandpa Starks, it was just a quiet tear rolling down his cheek. You see, passion is not defined by how much noise we can make or how many services we go to, although you do need to keep going to services. It's also defined by consistency. You can't get passionate about something overnight and something else overnight tomorrow night. Or be passionate about something today and something else next week. It is something that grows and develops. Some of you gained a new passion last week for missions or for ministry in a specific country. That is going to keep growing and developing. It's not that last week you were passionate for XYZ country and next week you'll be passionate for ABC country. But it's something that is, keeps going, that is consistent. Earlier in that passage in Philippians that I talked about, we're told to have the same mindset as Christ. Now, in that particular instance, it was talking about having the same mindset as Christ in our relationships. But I think it goes beyond that. And so I had three goals for today, three things that I wanted us to consider. Intro to ministry class, listen. Cognitive, I wanted to remind us about the Palm Sunday account. We don't very often talk about it in chapel because we don't meet on a Sunday. 
So I wanted to, us to re be reminded of that account. Effectively, I wanted us to appreciate that passion is demonstrated in different ways. And just because you are the kind of person who jumps up and down and you sit next to the person who doesn't move doesn't mean that that person is any less passionate than you are. If you know Reverend Richard and I, you know he's a, a much more up and down person. It doesn't mean that we have any different level of passion. It's just that we manifest it differently. Remember that. Appreciate that there are different ways of expressing passion. And behaviorally, examine our own passion. Is it stable and consistent? Or is it like the crowd on Palm Sunday that a week later had changed direction? Is it up front? Is it loud? Is it in your face? Good. Is it silent with a tear running down your cheek? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have met with us this morning. I thank you for the way that Alex led us and the way that he caused us to think. I thank you for this chance to examine passion. And I ask that you will help each of us as we examine our own passions to be aware of the need for consistency, for stability, for the way that you help our passions to grow. And I ask also that you will help us to appreciate those who are different than us. Lord, we couldn't stand it if we were all up front. We couldn't stand it if we were all silent. And I thank you for the way that you make each of us different. Help us to continue to grow in our passions, to be able to serve you to the best of our ability. Amen. Just a minute, we're going to close with the benediction as we have been doing. And I have been, during the, the process that this year, I've been re-examining this idea of benediction. What is a benediction? I was raised in the Methodist Church in England. I attended an Anglican or Church of England school. And the minister used to raise his hand when he, when he gave the benediction. And I didn't know what that was for. Well, I did a little bit of research on that recently. I found that, that, you know, if you want to have a church fight, you can even have a church fight about who raises their hand to do the benediction, who's allowed to or who's not. But I also discovered that it was modeled by Aaron in the book of Leviticus and modeled by Jesus in the book of Luke. So if you would stand with me and receive the benediction this morning. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. And you're dismissed.